Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Graduation is a sweet occasion, but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle. MMS.com has a solution. Personalized M&Ms. Just imagine the look on your grad's face when they receive a custom candy creation featuring their school's colors, name, and even their photo printed right on some M&Ms. It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. 
And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from New Orleans. Coming to you from the World War II Museum. One of the more amazing museums you'll ever visit. And one of America's newest museums. Take your gold cups and put them on a shelf and leave them there. And then head down here to see some amazing, amazing interactive exhibits that tell a story that, that needs to be told and retold. Uh, I always say to you that you know you go to our website for information about about interesting things to do. Well, this is an interesting thing to do. Also, at this time every week, I talk about uh, going to our website for our comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations doing all that hard and essential work all around the world, and uh, opportunities for you to give back every time you travel. I go back to, of course, post Katrina in 2005, and boy, there were so many opportunities to to do good work here, and there still are. Don't kid yourselves. Uh, and thinking that New Orleans is back 100% because it's not. Um, they need help in the Ninth Ward and, and, and St. Bernard's Parish and a few other places, and great opportunities for you to immerse yourself in the local communities and the neighborhoods. And the best part about doing all that is not to sound too selfish, but you get to hang out with the locals, and who better to give you a tour of those neighborhoods than the people who live there. So it's a win-win for everybody. Uh, and one in particular, of course, is New Orleans area Habitat for Humanity. Uh, of course, we all know about those great guys at that nonprofit. They're still working uh, in, in helping to rebuild this city. And uh, you know what? You can volunteer for a half a day, a weekend, a morning, doesn't matter. They will use you. And if you want information on how to get to them, it's basically habitat-nola.org or go right to our website, petergreenberg.com. As I said before, we are coming to you from the National World War II Museum here in New Orleans. And, and who better to give me my guide to this place uh, because it's changing all the time. Uh, is Stephen Watson, who's the executive vice president and COO of the World War II Museum. Hello, Stephen. Good morning, Peter. How are you doing today? What an amazing structure you have here. When I first came here, when you first opened in? 2000. Okay, now, making me, now you're making me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> it was a much smaller building. Yeah, one pavilion. We were actually the National D-Day Museum back in June 6, 2000 when we opened. And uh, it's really, it's remarkable. You know, now we are a six-acre campus. We've opened five major exhibition pavilions. We have, as you mentioned, interactive exhibits. We tell the whole story of the war in Europe and the Pacific. We have a wonderful 4D experience called Beyond All Boundaries that we produced with Tom Hanks. And just, you could really spend uh, a couple of days here going through the entire campus. Well, it's not that you could, you should. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, every time I come back here, you know, I learn something new. And I'm one of those guys who really studied World War II. I mean, I'm you know always fascinated with it because if you can't learn from the past, you're doomed to repeat it, as you know. Absolutely. Uh, you've been here almost since the start. Yeah, 15 years. So I came about two years after the museum opened, and that was right at the time when the museum had said, you know, we're going to go beyond D-Day. We're going to tell the entire story of World War II and uh, really was uh, part of the team that helped make that transition. You know, every time I come to this museum, what, what strikes me, and I'm sure you see the same thing, it's not just individuals coming, it's multi-generational families, because it's storytelling. It is storytelling, and you know, we're at a point now where of the 16 million men and women that served during World War II, there's only about 600,000 survivors. We're down to the last 4% of the World War II generation. The youngest are around 90. So what we see now are the sons and daughters, the granddaughters, 
the uh, uh, you know the, the following generations that want to come and really understand what their relative did during the war, and increasingly school children. Um, this year alone, we'll have over 60,000 school kids, middle and high school kids, come through uh, the museum. So it is a multi-generational experience. And I think people want to come and understand not only what a family member did, but you know how this country came together um, in a way on the home front and in the battlefront. You know, you were talking about volunteerism. You know, World War II was all about volunteerism. You know, the millions that signed up for service, um, the kids that gathered metal and planted victory gardens on the home front. I think there's a lot of lessons in volunteerism from World War II that it's also part of the experience here at the museum. You, know, you talk about the, the school kids who come. I was always struck uh, going to Nagasaki in Japan yeah. because it is a requirement in Japan, not just an, an extracurricular activity. It's a requirement for every school kid to go visit the museums in both Nagasaki and Hiroshima because they want to not only tell the stories, but to, to remind everybody that they don't want to repeat this. Yeah. Well, we wish it were a requirement here, too. But one of the other uh, programs that we've really invested heavily in, in fact, Katrina was sort of a wake-up moment for us. When you're a museum, you often think of your relevance through people walking through your doors. Well, there weren't many people walking through the <laughs> doors of the museum um, in that first year or two after Katrina. So in many ways, it brought us to thinking about other ways we can touch people. And we started really one of the first museums to invest in distance learning in a significant way. So if you can't get to the museum as a school kid, we can come to you. We have probably one of the most robust set of distance learning programs in the country. And just last year, we did a national electronic field trip with PBS for the 75th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor and had 4,000 schools and about 120,000 school kids participate in that live broadcast that day. And that's something that we want to do more of in the future. In addition to getting people coming to New Orleans, is bringing this history to them in their class. And how much are you working on oral histories? Oh, oral histories is, I mean, that is the core of this institution. Telling stories is the, the core of what we do in our exhibits and all our programs. We still have four historians actively on the road traveling the country interviewing World War II veterans, Holocaust survivors, and increasingly, you know, people that had uh, an impact in the post-war years as well. So we have almost 10,000 oral histories in our collection uh, at this point, and making a huge effort right now to make them digitally available at www.online.org. That's going to be an increasing uh, priority for us as we go forward. And that's a resource available to anybody? Absolutely, yeah. You've been here from, from almost day one, so you may be too close to it, but I ask you anyway. What's the most surprising exhibit to you? And then, put that on hold for a second, what's the most surprising exhibit to people who visit here that they're not expecting to see? So um, let me start with to people that come here. I think, you know. You just want to take a little extra time to figure it out for yourself. We know what you're, we know exactly you what you're doing. I'm stalling. I know um, you are. I think, you know, we tell people all the time about who we are, the significance of our mission, and the significance of this museum. And I think people are surprised they have a hard time, I think, putting New Orleans and National World War II Museum together. Well, that's together. exactly what we're talking about, yeah. And they come here, and I think they're blown away by the scope and the scale of the museum, the quality. Um, and I think, you know, in the, in the last two or three years, we've seen, you know, TripAdvisor and others kind of, you know, rank us in the top tier of museums in the country and the world. But I think it's hard for people to 
sort of put New Orleans and a, and a great museum together because that's not really what we're known for as a, as a destination. Now, personally, um, the exhibit I'm most proud of and the exhibit that I think uh, really has surprised and exceeded my expectations is our Road to Tokyo exhibits that we opened about uh, a year and a half ago. It's a dramatic space. It's a part of the war. Is that, that the Jimmy Doolittle attack? Yeah, I mean, it, it chronicles the entire story of the Pacific Theater from Pearl Harbor all the way through to the Japanese surrender in 45. And, you know, that's a part of the war that, you know, Americans know more about the European theater than they do the Pacific theater. And the Pacific theater was a very different war. Um, you know, vast geography, different enemy, of course. And, uh, and, and it's really and one of our, it's just an extraordinary exhibit. What strikes me, and I'm, I know you'll agree with this, is I have read just about every book written on the Battle of Midway. Mm -hmm. uh, the most, I mean, arguably the most decisive naval battle in history. Yep. When you think about what was involved, the intelligence that was gathered preceding it, and how it basically turned the war. It was a huge turning point, and, and it hung by a thread. It, you know, it could have gone the other way, and uh, literally, you know, that, that battle, in, uh, and we're coming up on the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Midway uh, in just a few days. That battle was such an important turning point because literally it, it took us from being on the defensive and turned things around, and, and, uh, and from there, you know, we were essentially beginning our advance across the Pacific. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. My next guest and I go back just a few years, almost 20. Uh, he's laughing, but it's true. He's a, he's a native son, obviously a Louisiana native. And it, it, I hope you'll appreciate when I, when I call him a true celebrity chef, because he's first and foremost a celebrity chef for New Orleans and one of its uh, biggest cheerleaders, uh, John Besh. How are you, John? I'm doing great, Peter. So wonderful to have you into in our city this weekend hope you're enjoying everything oh yeah and, and I, I do and and you know i can't walk uh 20 feet without finding out that you've opened another restaurant and and every <laughs> restaurant every restaurant is different i go back to the days with you in august by the way that's not a month that's of the right. that's that, that's the name of the restaurant um and then of course you know luke and and best steak uh and even the Caribbean room. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, over at the Poncho Train. I mean, everywhere I look, you are doing something that is supporting the community as well. Not to mention the fact you're branching out now in in places like Nashville. Yeah, you know, well, it's really exciting. August really became this incubator um, for um, what we now know as you know the best restaurant group from award-winning Shia Dominica to to August and. Uh, Lastly, you know, we just opened up the Marsh House in Nashville. And what's happened is that I've just surrounded myself with great people, and I've uh, invested in them, and uh, a lot of my chefs are my partners, and we've, we've, we've blossomed together. And as the city's come back, um, the restaurant scene has really come back in such a profound way. And it's, you know, it's hospitality that has truly driven the uh, rebirth and resurgence of, uh, of New Orleans. Well, you know, I go back to, and I'm, I'm sure you do too, 
I mean, you, you and I knew each other way before Katrina, but when Katrina happened, I mean, the, the real challenge here was not, you know, if you were going to come back, but how you were going to come back. That's right. And, you know, just seeing such, you know, in the wake of such utter destruction, it's just amazing to me what we what we have happening today and how New Orleans is a city that's righting some of its wrongs of the past. It's, uh, you know, I, I it's certainly we're, we're not where we need to be, but we're headed there. And uh, there, there's a great path. And, and I'm really excited about, you know, just from public housing to transportation to um, just a wealth of opportunity out there right now. Just it's become a, a you know, like a, a small startup capital of, of the U.S. A lot of creative energy has moved here. And um, nothing uh, shows that more than uh, what's taking place just within the hospitality. Really outstanding stuff. And you've been a big part of that rebuilding program because so many people after Katrina left. Um, and the real question is, are they going to come back? And a lot of them have. Right. Well, and it's also, you know, this is the only indigenous urban culture left in America. We have our own food that only exists here. And, and, and it doesn't travel well. You know, it, it, it's something that's truly indigenous, truly special, and truly quintessential American. And so... Uh, when I saw how fragile that culture was, many of us worked very hard just to do whatever we could to make sure that we sustained that culture. So, you know, foundations started sprouting up where, you know, uh, where people are doing whatever they can to make sure that we don't lose this one place that's truly real. Is it a gritty city? Yes, it is. But it's also a special one and one that we need to uh, be good stewards of. And so a, a lot of chefs like myself, um, hung our hat on that, hung our hat on the fact that we have something very special here. And it's not that it's better than any other place, but it's truly special. It only exists here. And so given that, I think you know, a lot of us took the course of uh, you know, trying to marshal resources and um, in the best way that we knew how, and, we, and that's through food and music, quite frankly. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. When I first came to New Orleans um, by train, uh, I uh, got into New Orleans late because Amtrak is never on time and got to the hotel around 10 o'clock at night and got a call from a friend of mine who lived down here, was very much involved in Jazz Fest, and said, what are you doing later? I'm going, it's 10 o'clock at night. What do you mean? What, what, what are you doing later? I said, I don't know. He says, well, I'll meet you, uh, I'll meet you in, the, in the lobby at like 1. I said, in the lobby at 1? Okay. So I, I'm like, what is going on here? I get in the lobby, and she's there. And she was late, too. She got around 1.15. And she says, come on with me. I said, where are we going? She said, to the river. I said, we're going to the river at 1.15 in the morning? Yes. What are we doing? You'll see. We get to the river. There's a riverboat. Just get on. I said, at 1.30 in the morning? Yep. And the boat is untied, and off we go. And who's on the boat? The Neville brothers. And the next thing you know, we didn't get back till 5 in the morning, and it was like performance all night long. That is the New Orleans I remember. That is the New Orleans that still exists today. And joining me now is somebody who knows all about that, Doug McCash, who's the entertainment editor at the Times-Picayune. Peter, listen to this. There's a chance we've met before. 
because I was a bartender on the uh, Riverboat <laughs> President, no lie. And uh, I used to work those Neville Brother concerts. And they were fabulous. I, so you, you know I'm not making that uh, up. You're not making it up at all. And during Jazz Fest, they used to do uh, back-to-back concerts yeah. where they would do a concert, you know, at a reasonable hour, starting at 9.30 or something. And then they'd clean the place and do a second concert. And uh, you'd... You know. See, the thing was, it wasn't that the, the crazy thing that they were going to do a second concert. The crazy thing was they were actually able to clean the place. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you should have seen it. Throwing the chairs across the deck to get to the floor and oh, yeah. just that fast. I did see it. I was there. Well, there you go. Exactly. There you now, go. You've been at the Times Picayune for... I've been there for 18 years, I so think. So you've seen so many changes, not just to mention the newspaper business, but just in terms of the city itself. The city itself. Um, gosh, uh, Katrina was the big moment here, as you know, 2005, and the uh, the hurricane and flood that uh, shut the city down for a period of time. I was here. I would have lost every bet because I thought that that was pretty much the end of the art scene I thought that the music scene was scattered and, you know, we kept our fingers crossed that it was coming back. I was wrong across the board. The art scene came back stronger than ever. More devotion, you know. You you know what's even stronger, and, and I hope you don't disagree with me, the art gallery scene. Oh, my God. I mean, just driving down Julia Street last night, I mean, just looking out and seeing some of the galleries I'd never seen before. It's absolutely true. I mean, this is a, this is a small town, and there are... Um, and there are three, uh, there are at least three gallery rows in town. It's amazing. So since 2005, because that was Katrina, what's changed the most for you? What's changed the most? Oh, my goodness. I guess in the, in, in the most general terms, a real devotion, you know, to the city. I think the people who are here. A, a much more of an emotional uh, connection. Much more of an emotional com- connection, I think. And, uh, and you see it everywhere. You see it everywhere. The drive to uh, the drive to stay. The drive to uh, um, dig in, no matter what. Now there are still neighborhoods that need help. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. St. Bernard's and and uh, the wards. I mean, a couple that still need work. It is absolutely true. You can drive. Uh, I could drive you through neighborhoods that where there's still weed-filled uh, fields where there used to be houses. Yeah, and there's still a couple of houses that are still red tagged. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's, but, but it's come back. It really has. It has, uh, it has made a remarkable recovery. Now, let's get off Bourbon Street for a second, can we? Sure. Okay, good. If we must. Well, we, <laughs> well at a certain point, we must. Uh, and I'm not trying to be elitist about it, but, you know, there's so many things that are going on outside of that. It is true. It is absolutely true. Um, oh, gosh, uh, um, right off the bat, Frenchman Street, which, which almost connects with Bourbon Street, is, uh, is a whole nother entertainment district that is, um, on any given night, easily as crowded. Has a, has a little different tone. Um, uh, Bourbon Street is a trip. It's, uh, everybody should go there. Everybody should see it. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and, um, and by the way, everybody does go there. And everybody does go there, and everybody yeah. does see it. I think Frenchman Street, maybe, maybe the tone of the music is more serious. Maybe the tone of the music is, is uh, a less purely good time and, you know, and, and more um, uh, concert uh, sort of. Eh, that's not right. It's, what is it? Uh, it has a different tone. Let me oh, leave it at so that. So let's talk about French. Where do you go on that street? Oh, golly. There's a place called DBA that I like quite a bit. Uh, there's a place that's been there forever called Snug Harbor, which is one of the most comfortable clubs to see a show anywhere. It's, it's, it, it, it's exactly as you imagine a little um, jazz club ought to be. You go in, there's candles on the table. 
you, uh, you sit shoulder to shoulder with everybody else and watch somebody that you can almost reach out and touch. For someone listening to the show who's never been here before, what would you say to them would be the biggest surprise awaiting them that might even be a surprise to you these days? Oh, gosh, big surprise. Um, well, it's everything you want it to be. That's for sure. Whatever in your imagination, you know, Bourbon Street is like, well, that's what it's like. It's going to be a crowded, crazy experience. You're going to love it. And then that'll spill you out onto Frenchman Street, and you're going to love that too. So um, maybe, not, maybe not a surprise, but maybe that it, it so meets expectations. I mean, you know, Las Vegas branded itself for so many years as what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But that could have easily be attributed to New Orleans. That is true, and it's a funny thing. Lately, that's been part of the conversation here because they are installing security cameras, have installed, on Bourbon Street. And I spoke to a, a doorman at one of the clubs, and he said, you know, this is a great idea, but I'm a little worried that people think on Bourbon Street that nobody will ever know what goes on, and now they will. <laughs> well, if that's the case, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Note to self. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. No matter where you are in the city, you can't walk or even stay still for any amount of time without hearing music. It's on the streets. It's uh, I, I love the parades. And we're not just talking Mardi Gras, folks. We're talking about parades all year long. Um, and uh, joining me now, somebody who knows a little bit about the music scene here because he writes about it all for the New Orleans Advocate. Keith Spira, how are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. I mean, New Orleans' only daily newspaper? Yes. <laughs> the only one delivered seven days a week. Amazing, because a lot of the, the Times-Picayune has gone online. Exactly. They, they, uh, my former employer, the Times-Picayune, only delivers three days a week. Uh, you know, indicative of how New Orleans is kind of behind the times, we actually have an old-fashioned newspaper war going on in these, uh, you know. I kind of like digital, that. It's kind of cool. No, I kind of like it. Now, you're a native? I am, born and raised. You grew up listening to music. You can't, you can't hide it when you're in New Orleans. I did. My dad was a huge fan of New Orleans rhythm and blues from the 50s and 60s. So around the house, we were always hearing... Fats Domino and Irma Thomas. Fats and, Domino, who lived here. And still lives here. Yeah. Still lives here, incredibly. Yeah. 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 So I was uh, indoctrinated early on to the music scene in New Orleans. Of course, you know, back then when I was, uh, you know, a, a youngster and a teenager, I thought that was kind of all old man music. You know, I wasn't very interested in listening to Fats Domino. I wanted to listen to Motley Crue and things like that. But uh, And then things changed. Then things changed. I grew up and realized that that stuff is cool and timeless and, uh, you know, in a twist of fate, ended up introducing my father to Fats Domino one time. So it's kind of come full circle for me. Wow. And you say it's cool and timeless. It's cool because it is timeless. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, those singles that were made here in New Orleans in the 50s and 60s, you know, Dave Bartholomew, the producer who co-wrote all of Fats Domino stuff, I mean, he had such a great ear and they tapped was into Blueberry, something. Was Blueberry Hill done here? 
It, I believe it was recorded here. I mean, they, you know, Fats didn't write that one. Those are the ones he did not write. No, but he made it famous. Made it famous, absolutely. Uh, and the vast majority of his singles were cut here at Cosmo Matassa's various studios uh, on North Rampart Street, which it's now a laundromat. Um, but there's a little plaque on the outside saying this is where, you know, basically rock and roll was formed. Well, the last time I spent some time here, my tour guide was Harry Connick. Mm. And he and I were going out into the neighborhoods and, you know, doing a music tour. Senior I mean, or junior? Junior. Junior. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, Senior's a singer, too, you know, but... Uh, well, he, but was, he was a judge. He, he was a district attorney. District yeah. attorney. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he's also a crooner. So, yeah. uh, but yes, Harry Jr. spent a lot of times, uh, a lot of time going out to hear music as a youngster. He had a tutor named James Booker. Are you familiar with James Booker? No, he told player? me the story that who used to come over to his house all the time, lived with him for a while. I mean, this is hanging out with him. Book, it was there was a grand irony, and you know, Booker had a bit of a criminal history and was an interesting character. But you know, Harry's dad, the DA, recruited him as a tutor for his young son, which is kind of fun. Yeah, he came up through the system, meaning the criminal justice system. Yes, he did. He had a little heroin problem at times, and uh, yeah, was it was an unusual choice for a DA to have. But to tutor. this, but to this day, Harry credits Booker. At just about every show he plugs him. I mean, he just played uh, the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival a little while back, and Harry on stage did a whole James Booker tribute. Amazing. So there's Tipitina's. We know about some of the clubs, right? What's, what's some of the places that people may not know about? You know, there's a listening room, a place called Chikiwawa that I really like a lot. It's, it's a bit of an outpost. It's not near any of the entertainment districts. It's on which, by, which, by the way, makes it pretty good. Yeah, I mean, you know, Frenchman Street's a lot of fun, um, but it, it has become a little overwhelmed by its popularity. Chikiwawa is sort of a standalone club on a stretch of Canal Street uh, out of downtown, but it's just a really good listening room, good beer, comfortable room. They have good food there that you can order, and uh, it's where a side of New Orleans music that you don't always hear as much about, kind of the singer-songwriter vibe. You hear a lot of those kind of guys there, uh, so it's a little bit eclectic. It's not just the brass band jazz funk thing. It's a little more... Uh, and the brass band jazz funk thing you can do on Bourbon Street. To, to a degree, I mean, you can't do necessarily um, what I would consider the authentic brass band experience on Bourbon Street anymore. Where, do you, where do you find that? Tuesday nights at the Maple Leaf Bar. Oh, well, we know the Maple Leaf. Come on. I yeah. mean, you know, Rebirth's been playing that gig forever, you right. know. Um, I mean, that's kind of the flagship brass band gig. The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. When people come to New Orleans, I mean, there are certain things that they're, you know, they just have to do. Um, they have to go to Bourbon Street. They have to get silly. Uh, they have to walk around with go cups and look even sillier. Um, obviously, I, I'd much rather get out into the other neighborhoods. But one of the things that I always do, and as, as touristic as it sounds, I always do it. Actually, there are a couple things I do, and, there, and it's walking distance. Uh, I go down to the Central Grocery and, and get... A dangerous sandwich called the muffaletta, which, by the way, wear really clothes, wear really old clothes because you're gonna, you can't, you can't help but stain your shirt when you eat this thing. Um, it's got everything in it, trust me. Uh, and then uh, in the morning, before you go there for the sandwich, you go a little bit further down the street to the legendary Cafe du Monde, and of course you get the beignet, but wear the same shirt because <laughs> it's gonna get covered in powdered sugar. Uh, talk about an iconic uh, New Orleans delicacy, if you will, 
Um, and joining me now, the man who, uh, who runs the joint, he's the, uh, he's the vice president of the Café du Monde, Bert Benrude. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on the show. I mean, you know, because we know each other. I'm, I'm there all the time. Uh, scare me a little bit. In a given day, how many beignets are you serving? That, that's a hard that's a hard question um i know for uh on a weekend um uh, we want to have uh 5500 pounds of flour in our <laughs> storeroom to make it till monday i'm talking friday morning to monday morning and how much sugar are we talking about about half that another ton of sugar and you know when you order them they don't come like one on a plate they come like two or three right right they come sets of threes this is something that's been handed down by generations the cafe de monde is owned by the fernandez family which is my wife's uh my wife's family um and uh we're on our fourth generation right well, you've now. been working there for 31 years 31 years yep i've been very fortunate to be there for 31 years it's been it and when you say it's a tourist place no, it's not. It started out as a local. Oh, place. I know that. I mean, this is years ago. Um, yeah, years ago, where we uh, Hubert Fernandez bought the coffee shop in 1942. Yeah, but, it, yeah, but the locals go in the morning. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, no, they're yeah. Well, <laughs> they, they it's a religious trip for them. They you know every time they go down to the quarter, they'll make a stop at Cafe du Monde. That's one on you know um, people come to visit the locals. They'll bring them to Cafe du Monde. Of course, and, but the place really hasn't changed much. No, not at all. Not uh, not since 1975. And uh, uh, there was a renovation of the French market uh, at that time, and uh, and we changed. We changed. They pushed us a little further into the market, so we gained a little more space. And uh, at this point in time, with the with the big influx, with you know, with tourism continuing to uh, you know here to happen here in New Orleans, with especially like with the National World War II Museum. Um, which continues to attract people to New Orleans. Um, we need more space. You know, there's we got lines, and uh, you would think that the, it would is take, there a good is there a good time to go there where you're not going to find a line? Um, yeah, I would say it's seven o'clock in the morning. That was the last time I saw you. That's it. That's right. Remember, remember that we? Yeah, you were there with Harry Connick. He I brought was, you there. You were in town. That's right. Harry Connick yeah. and I went down there. And we we got him to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Exactly. And, there, and we, we beat the line. We <laughs> you, beat, you beat did, the line. Uh, then there was Hurricane Katrina. And, of course, New Orleans was devastated. How much did it affect you? Well, uh, we, I don't think we recovered for eight years right after Hurricane Katrina. Really? I mean, it was a very trying time. Um, but, you know, we have a lot of momentum behind our, our family business. Um, we, uh, it, the, we not only have the Café du Monde, on Decatur Street, but we do uh, we do sell our box beignet mix and our canned coffee into the grocery stores, so that helped us helped us because we're we're you know we're mail order our our, our products across the United right, States. Right, but so you guys like most of the ones you guys were shut down for a while. Yeah, we were shut down for eight weeks, for eight weeks. Well, eight and weeks considering everything else that happened in New Orleans was was a small amount of time. Well, we. Uh, we we every, every, we the family got to work and our our um, our the the people who help support our business you know the re- refrigeration guys the you know the painters that we use they all came and um, and got us going amazing and to this day you're open how many hours a day we're open 24 hours a day I knew it <laughs> 364 days a year we close on Christmas. We give everybody everybody a break uh, on Christmas Day, 
And, uh, and then we step into probably our six busiest days of the year, which is between Christmas and New Year's. And, and then there's Mardi Gras. And then there's Mardi Gras, right. So there's something always going on in the city of New Orleans. Have you changed the recipe at all? No. No, we have not. No. You say using the same cooking oil, the same everything? Right. We cook our beignets in cottonseed oil. Um, we, um, you know, nothing in, in terms of ingredients, nothing has changed in forever, really. Although I will recommend people uh, that if you're going to have one, make it hot. Oh, well, that's that's what we do is we, we cook our beignets to order. So they're always hot. Um, and uh, however, I'll tell you this, if uh, a cold beignet is better than no beignet. Oh, I knew you were going to say that. Okay, you, stop that. I tell you that because I only tell you that because I, I, I used to, I'd bring them home to my kids after working at night, you know, two o'clock in the morning and uh, they would eat them in the morning. And so would I. Because, <laughs> you know, I was not going to drive all the way back downtown to get some hot ones for them. You know, I've always said the, the one guy who, who always thin is the guy who works at the donut shop because he can't stand to eat the donuts. But you're actually eating the beignets you're making. Oh, yeah. Well, every day, the best part of my day is when I get to work and I go get a cup of cafe au lait and one beignet. Only one. Only one. Only, well, no. When <laughs> you they're liar. Re- when they're really good, I'm, 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 go, I'm going for two, you know. So. <laughs> well, did you bring me any beignets today? You did not. I did not. I'm sorry. So I, I, I like to serve them hot. We like to serve oh, them Oh, yeah, hot. please. Yeah. <laughs> so now you're going to make me go down and stand in line now, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. Yes, I am. No, I'm not. I'm yeah, not. you are. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, well, anyway. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is... The flight attendants. Please look at one now. My next guest knows the scene here a little bit. In fact, she's the uh, she's the social scene editor at NOLA.com. Yes, sir. Of the New York of the New Orleans Times Picayune. Uh, Susan Strachan, how are you? I'm fine. How are you today? I'm good. Well, you heard me do the build-up on the PT boat, but you got to admit that's pretty cool. It is really cool, and the World War II Museum has done a wonderful job at uh, bringing, adding new elements to uh, the museum to make it interesting for everyone in all ages. Now, now, like a lot of people, you're not a local. No, I am not. You're a Connecticut girl. I'm a Connecticut girl. I came down uh, for college, uh, Newcomb, and then went back to New York and then came back here. Because you had to come back. I had to come back. <laughs> what brought you back? Um, I, you know, I lived in Manhattan for about six years, and I love Manhattan. And by the way, I believe, I strongly believe that everybody should at least spend one year, if they can, in New York City, because it makes you streetwise globally. I, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. And I spent about six years uh, there, and then I just was sort of, I'm, you know, I need a new change of, you know, pace, and came back down here, found a job, and moved, and that was 20... Two years ago, 23 years ago, something wow. like that. Yes. So you've seen all the changes. I've seen a lot of changes. And I, you know, I was here in the 80s for college. And then when I came back in the 90s to today, it's a lot of changes. I guess, you know, beware of the law of unintended consequences, at least as it, re- as it relates to weather. Katrina gave New Orleans a chance to basically reinvent itself. It did. I mean, from the education system, um, which was abysmal before Katrina. And it it done- really was. And so they've done a really great job at um, shaking things up, making the public schools better, um, integrating charter schools into the system. Because, you know, basically before Katrina, you just had public schools and parochial schools or private schools. And private schools are very, very expensive down here. And then you have the art scene took off as well, the uh, St. Claude Corridor. 
uh, St. Claude Avenue corridor, uh, all these artists uh, founded these galleries and their artist-owned galleries, really interesting cutting-age art. Uh, the Ogden Museum across the street was built, World War II Museum uh, was already here. Uh, so there's a lot of things that changed. Um, fund you know, it's a very phil philanthropic town. Uh, so there's a lot of you know nonprofits that uh, benefit from the influx of new people and new ideas. Now listen, you've got the, the the job of all jobs. You cover parties. Yes, I do. Fundraisers, yes. debutante parties. Yes. Uh, you see how I'm saying this? Parties, <laughs> parties. Right. Uh, music events, carnivals, parades. The the, the deal. Yeah. What excites you? <laughs> That's a good question. People uh, ask me, and my photographers, uh, I usually use Dinah Rogers and Joss Braystead when we're waiting around at parties, like, like, what do you do for fun? And we pause, because after a while, it's, it's, you're going to parties day after day. But, you know, the music scene, the food is, and the food is, you know, just makes it really, you know, very interesting. It keeps, every, it keeps us alive. So basically, it's what you do after the parties. It's the eating at the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it actually kind of is. I mean, the parties are a lot of fun. People do a lot, you know, put a lot of great effort into their parties. You know, anything from the small parties to uh, the debutante, you know, debutante parties. I mean, the word debutante parties in the year 2017, it's sort of an anachronism, but it's still going on. It is. And actually, my position is sort of um, a rarity as well. Uh, the social scene is, is very just, big just in do me, Just do me a favor. Don't change titles. Don't become the debutante editor. Oh, no, 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 no. But there's a, there's a definite season to it. Uh, actually, in mid-June is the big, uh, the big presentation, Les Débuts des Jeunes Filles de la Nouvelle Orléans. My bad French accent, I apologize. Which means get ready for debutantes. <laughs> yes, and then there's some parties in June, and then it, there's a summer off, and then around Thanksgiving, uh, the, the night before Thanksgiving, there's the Bachelor's Club presentation, and then... <laughs> It kind of kicks off uh, for uh, more presentations and parties. And then Twelfth Night, January 6th, is when uh, Carnival officially starts, but the official Carnival Balls start that night as well. So New Orleans has actually perfected the one-year calendar of partying. Mm -hmm. Exactly. There's no real slow season. There really isn't. There's no off-season. There's no off-season. And, uh, you know, I'm one of those guys who, I love parades. You have lots of parades. Mm -hmm. It's not just Mardi Gras. Not just Mardi Gras. You have a really great parade during Halloween. Um, you know, if there's a big event in town, like the Super Bowl, there's a parade. If there's a Sugar Bowl, there's a parade. There's second lines. If somebody wakes up in the morning, there's a parade. There's a parade. Yes, there is. And, on sun and Sundays, there's um, usually there are second line parades all over town. Well, not what's all a, over what, town. What's a second line parade? A second line parade is, uh, they're run by social aid and pleasure groups, um, mainly African-American. And uh, it was the second line, if I, if I get this correctly, is there's the funeral, and then behind it are the people walking behind the funeral in honor, and then they start cutting up with the music. And second line, these second line social aid and pleasure clubs aren't following a funeral, obviously, but they are just, you know, there's a band, there's a brass band, they're members, they get dressed up. But you could also hang out at a brass band at a funeral, too. Yes, yes, you that can. Just, that you just can. happens. You can, yeah. I know. Yeah. What what gets you excited? Because uh, I, mean, I got to figure it out. I like the second lines and then um, time off sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, let me see, I like going to sailing out at Lake Pontchartrain is really fun. Uh, it's it, There's a lot to do in town. I like going, as I said, restaurants is like going out to eat is All one right, of my so, favorite things. So here's my question. A good friend of yours from Connecticut or from New York mm -hmm. is coming to New Orleans for the first time. What are you going to take them to do an experience that is not in the guidebook, not in the brochure, that's not touristic? 
Okay, fair enough. Um, I would say take him a second line on Sunday. It's not too touristy yet. Uh, I would take him to you know breakfast at let me see I, uh, at like Camellia Grill, even though that's not tourist that's touristy, but it's well, still you know one what? of the best no, breakfast and, in the and, city. And you know what? And it's not in Bourbon Street. It's out there, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. You, you still go. I love it. Yeah. And then there's little places like Toast and Riccobono's. Uh, Toast is relatively new. Riccobono's been around in town. And then we go to, you know, Audubon Park. Uh, maybe go to the zoo. Uh, By I the would... way, Audubon Zoo, it's the only zoo in America you can, get, you can get a beer. Oh, I did not know that. Aren't you glad I stopped by? I'm glad you stopped by. Yeah. I learned something new. I appreciate that. Yeah. And then I would go, and talking about beer, there's a whole new group of um, breweries and brew pups I've opened literally in the past six months. I'm shocked. More drinking in New Orleans. More drinking in New Orleans. But there's this quarter on Chapatula Street uh, where you can probably go, you can go to Urban South, Courtyard Brewery, Port New Orleans, which just opened, and Nola Brewery, and they're open in a distillery, all in one street in New Orleans. So you can take a bike. One-stop shopping. Yes, exactly. One-stop designated driver shopping. Yes, yes, yes. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own? Bobbing about between my legs. Uh, earlier in the show, we were talking with John Besh. I remember when John Besh had like one restaurant, and uh, I, I went over to August all the time. And and then I, I I cannot keep up with all the stuff he's doing. Not only here, but he's he's got a restaurant I think in Nashville. I mean, he's going crazy. And one of the restaurants that I haven't tried yet. Uh, and I'm looking forward to it, is the, is the Caribbean Room over at the Pontchartrain Hotel. And joining me now is the executive chef, Chris Lux. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. So you're, you're a John Besh uh, graduate, so to speak. Yes, I am. Uh, I have to ask, the Caribbean Room means what in terms of, of cuisine? Okay, it's a little uh, deceptive with the name. It's That's why I had to ask. We don't serve Caribbean food. <laughs> uh, so there's no Jamaican jerk chicken? No, unless somebody requests it, then I'll make it for them. Oh. <laughs> But no, it's, it's, you know, modern French with the Creole touch, you know, the, the New Orleans culture has so many different um, types of food that are kind of meld together. And that's the beauty, I think, of New Orleans. And then we try to pay homage to that as much as possible. But the Pontchartrain itself has a history. Very much so. And, and it was it originally a restaurant? Yes, it originally was a restaurant. Uh, the hotel opened in uh, the early, tw- uh, late 20s. Yeah. And it's been around. And then um, post-Katrina, it kind of felt, you know, kind of went in disrepair. And um, then in uh, 2000. 14, we started renovation, and we opened in 2016. Now, you're a Texas boy. I am. Where? East Texas, Lufkin. Oh, my goodness. See, now, I used to have a lot of time in East Texas. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. And, and places like Idabel, Oklahoma, and, and the Red River counties, and right? I mean, that is uh, scary to me. I have to tell you, <laughs> when I was first in East Texas, I was a correspondent for Newsweek, and I would walk into town, and people would go, you're not from around here now, are you? And they were right. <laughs> Uh, it was it was amazing. So how did you get from East Texas to here? Uh, kind of a long <laughs> travel. I originally went to school in uh, Nacogdoches uh, College um, for normal studies. And my parents were very excited when I told them I was going to leave and go to culinary school. <laughs> so um, I went to culinary school in South Carolina and uh, traveled, lived in Ireland, bounced around, ended up in Dallas. And uh, a guy that I worked with in Dallas had been working at Commander's Palace. And so he came back to New Orleans, and I moved down here to work in New Orleans. To see at what, Commander's Palace? Uh, actually, I started at Foodie's Kitchen, which was owned by the uh, Brendan family, and then I moved to Commander's. You talk to anybody in this town, and 90% of them tell you, at one point, they worked at Commander's Palace. 
It's true. It's a, it's, it's the proving grounds. It's a definitely when you, when you work there, it's a, a learning curve like no other. And of course you walk out of commander's palace and just walk across the street to the graveyard and hang out over there. Right. It's amazing. Yes. <laughs> uh, you say it's not Caribbean food. So talk about the food. Well, you know, the food is, and why would you call it the Caribbean room? The decor. Okay. The, when you see the decor today, you'll, you'll get it. Okay. You'll understand I'll that. I'll get it. It's very colorful. It's very hard to be upset in that room. It's, a, it's very, <laughs> got a lot going on. So it's a, it's a beautiful dining room. Wow. All right. But the cuisine is? The cuisine is um, Creole-inspired. We do, I have a little bit of Asian influence, too. There's a, a little know, barbecue, too? A little barbecue, but it's not, it's New Orleans barbecue. So it's our take on New Orleans barbecue. New Orleans barbecue is a Worcestershire-based sauce, normally with, mounted with butter, and then you cook shrimp in that. Our version uses Asian ingredients. Uh, it tastes very, very similar to, to a traditional New Orleans barbecue, but we're using ingredients you might not be familiar with. All right, but when you say Asian ingredients, is it, is it Asian cuisine? No, no. It's still paying homage to all the local cultures. We have Spanish influence, Italian influence, the Creole influence. You know, recently we did the show uh, on the Crescent, uh, the iconic train that goes from New York all the way down here to New Orleans. And... I know this because I've done it for so long that when you stop in Meridian, Mississippi, you go to Weidman's and you get the black bottom pie. And, you know, and the train used to stop for an extra 20 minutes there. It's like all the chefs would run off the train to get it. You know? And then you, the, the pie wouldn't last more than 15 minutes. and It was gone, right? You've got a pie. We do have a pie. And it, yeah, you have a pie called the Mile High Pie. Mile high pie, it's technically not a pie. It's a, it's a layered ice cream. So Listen, at a mile high level, it's technically, nothing's a pie. No. 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 <laughs> the, the funny thing is everyone sees us like, I think it used to be bigger. And now, I mean, it stands about this tall. But everyone thinks. Well, this is radio. How yeah. tall does it stand? About two and a half feet? Uh, not two and a half feet, but maybe, a, maybe about a good 10 inches or so. It's, it's pretty substantial. Okay. And what's in it? So we have layered of uh, three ice creams we make in-house. We do vanilla, chocolate, and uh, peppermint with a cookie base, and then we have a meringue on top that we burn the top of it, similar to a um, baked Alaska, and we so, serve it with chocolate sauce. So as Chris Luck is going to say, you make room for dessert over there, otherwise you'll be very disappointed. That's the one thing that everyone remembers the most about the Caribbean room. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.